Hello everyone, you are listening to a later edition of the Royal Ramble on this beautiful Monday afternoon, but there is a reason for that, as we've had quite a weekend in Music City, USA. That's Nashville, by the way, for those of you who aren't in the know or have been living, you know, under a rock. And the hits just kept on coming, and there were some big ones at the UFC show on Saturday night, which was not in Nashville, but I'll get to that in a bit. To start, I'm going to start with wrestling, and of course, when you talk about wrestling, you gotta be talking about WWE, am I right? Well, it's appropriate because we can now officially use that word again, and it's out with the old and in with the new head of creative, Paul Levesque, who has had quite a busy week, and I'd imagine that it's only going to get busier. Oh, and by the way, I'm your host, Blaine the Brain, so as I said, we are going to kick things off with some SummerSlam talk, so away we go. The show started off with a pretty good country musical-themed video intro, which really had a big event feel to it. It reminded me of the ones they used to do for those manias in New Orleans. Pretty well done there, and good start. This led into the very first match. It was for the Raw Women's Championship with Bianca Belair defending against Becky Lynch, and I thought it was a damn near guarantee that Becky was getting her title back, and perhaps it might have gone that way if still under the old regime, but it didn't play out that way. Becky starts to target Bianca's arm in the early going, as I thought she might, as the announcers did a really good job of explaining the reason for this, that Becky was basically weakening the arm, not only to prevent Belair from delivering her own finisher, the KOD, but also softening the arm up to set up for the disarm her. The strategy did work out in the early going, as Bianca had difficulty lifting Becky on her shoulder, and I thought Bianca did a really good job of selling here. Bianca later tries the KOD again, but again couldn't support Becky's weight, and then Becky tries to transition into the armbar, but couldn't get it properly applied, and they kind of spill out to the floor, where Bianca finally hits the KOD on the outside. And Graves makes a good point that Bianca may have had no choice but to take a count-out victory, as she lacked the arm strength to lift Becky back into the ring. Becky eventually does make it back in, and then there was a later spot where Bianca's on the top rope, and Becky grabs hold of Bianca's braid and pulls her off the ropes and right into a manhandle slam for a near fall. Becky then tries another manhandle slam, but this one from the top rope, only for Bianca to block the attempt and hit a Spanish fly. I have to go on record to say that I usually hate that move, but this sequence actually made sense since Bianca didn't have the arm strength to do really anything else. After that spot, Bianca springs up and musters up enough strength to finally hit the KOD and get the pin and retain her title, much to my surprise. But all things considered, I think this was the right call. Becky then gets right back into the ring and genuinely extends her hand for a handshake, and Bianca gracefully accepts, and they embrace with a hug, thus turning Becky babyface. I'm torn here because while I do think Becky should be a babyface because no one really wants to boo her, this was the wrong type of babyface, and kind of goes against everything the man Becky Lynch stands for. But we'll see where it goes from here. This kind of reminded me of when Hulk Hogan handed the belt over to the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 6. It kind of felt like a true passing of the torch moment. From there, Becky exits stage left so Bianca can celebrate, but the celebration is cut short and interrupted by the familiar music of the returning Bailey, who comes out to a massive pop. Bailey makes her way all the way to ringside and is then joined by the also returning Dakota Kai, which was a genuine surprise as Kai was one of the releases several months ago. But those two are not alone as they are joined by a third member of the group, Io Shirai, who is now known as Io Sky, although you wouldn't know it as it was barely acknowledged on the broadcast 
and the graphic in her video still showed as Io Shirai. In any case, we now have this apparent new heel faction who enters the ring to confront Bianca, but Bianca is quickly joined by her new bestie, Becky Lynch, who stands side by side with her to face off with the heel team, and I was totally anticipating a swerve where Becky attacks Bianca, but it didn't happen. Eventually, the heels just exit the ring and back away. This was an interesting development, and I'm looking forward to see where this is going from here. The Miz vs. Logan Paul was up next in the first celebrity match of the evening, and less excited about this match, I could not be. In fact, I know that pro wrestling is all about suspending disbelief, but if this was a legitimate fight, I have to believe that Miz would have been eating canvas in about 30 seconds. I mean, are you telling me that Miz can put up as much of a fight as Floyd Mayweather? Give me a break. Paul was actually pretty athletic in this match. Dare I say he was more athletic than The Miz, but I guess that's not surprising because this company has a history of booking celebrity non-wrestlers better than their actual talent. I thought that might have changed under the new regime, but I guess the goal of this show was to end all programs created under the Vince McMahon era and start fresh on Monday, which isn't a bad plan. Paul delivers a moonsault from the apron to the floor, and then back in the ring he hits a blockbuster which Graves claims was taught to him by The Miz. I don't know about you, but I don't recall ever seeing Miz hit a blockbuster in his career. Champa tries to get involved, but the ref catches him red-handed and ejects him from ringside. Champa then grabs his chair and sits down in protest, which leads to AJ Styles' music playing. And then Styles comes from out of the crowd with a phenomenal forearm to Champa off the barricade. Styles and Champa then fight through the crowd all the way to the back as cameras go back to the ring, where Paul hits his own phenomenal forearm on Miz, which again was very athletic. Paul then sets up Miz on the announce table at ringside and hits an amazing looking frog splash from the top rope through that table. Back in the ring, Maurice tries to distract Paul, allowing Miz to grab the card that Paul has attached to his chain. Miz tries to attack from behind, but Paul ducks and Miz almost hits the misses. This allows Paul to hit his own skull-crushing finale on Miz for the win. There's a Maximum Male Models promo up next. They're basically advertising pure live water. This was hilarious, and this gimmick has grown on a lot of people. I think as goofy as it is, you kind of need to go all out with it. This needs to be Zoolander-level stupid. Theory challenged Bobby Lashley up next for the US title, and I kind of figured Theory's match would be early in the show to further the tease of him cashing in the Money in the Bank briefcase in the main event. This really wasn't much of a match and didn't do anything for me personally. I really don't care about either of these guys, to be honest, because they haven't given me a reason to. They're both just extra faces on the roster, but I probably wouldn't have even noticed if their match was cut from the show. Before the bell rings, Theory Sneak attacks Lashley from behind with the briefcase to get the early advantage. Lashley eventually does come back from the early assault and starts building momentum. He goes for a spear, but Theory leapfrogs him and Lashley hits the ring post shoulder first. Theory then tries to capitalize with a forward roll from the apron through the middle rope, but Lashley catches him into a military press and then repositions him into the hurt lock and Theory furiously taps out, so Lashley keeps the belt. So let me get this straight. This is the guy that people were saying would cash in and win the WWE Universal title at SummerSlam? Really? They have a long way to go with Theory, that's for sure. The Judgment Day vs. The Mysterios was up next in what was advertised as a no-disqualification match, but was it really? It really didn't feel like it to me. The problem I have with Judgment Day is that they climaxed in the angle when they took out Edge. That was great. 
But then it all went downhill, and now they just feel like another retribution. I can't stand when you're trying to build a new faction, but they end up not only feuding with mid-card guys, but also losing to those mid-carders. It isn't quite the impact that they should be making, and this match just fell flat for me. Much like the match before, Judgment Day Sneak attacks the Mysterios before the opening bell, and from that point on, it just felt like a regular match that could have been had on any Raw. In fact, they did this very match this past week on Raw. It didn't feel special. Balor finally started using a chair on Rey, and then Rhea gets involved with a reverse electric chair to Dominic on the outside on into the ring apron. Balor then calls for another chair, but the lights suddenly go dark, and a version of the old brood music plays as Edge makes his triumphant return. So there were a couple of problems I had with this. Firstly, as if everyone and their grandmother didn't already know that this was happening, they beat us over the head with it on the kickoff show by airing a video flat out saying that Edge is coming tonight. But then both the announcers and the talent had to play it off as a big surprise, making everyone involved and the audience look dumb. Secondly, Edge has clearly made the difference between Judgment Day being the next NWO and the next Retribution. So Edge comes out with a big boot to Priest in the aisleway. He then spears both Priest and Balor in the ring, which leads to a double 619 by the Mysterios on Balor, and they get the win. They are babyfaces, right? This was poorly booked, and it did none of these guys any favors. I hated all of this, and it was very underwhelming return for Edge. Pat McAfee versus Happy Corbin was the next match on the card, and as Corbin is making his entrance, we hear the sound of a choir chanting, Bum-ass Corbin which leads into McAfee's entrance. It was a fine entrance, but I was pretty disappointed that we didn't get the Seven Nation Army one from Mania. McAfee opened strong with a super kick and then the Hurricane Rana from the middle turnbuckle. Later on, Corbin gains the advantage and starts beating down McAfee on the announce table and then shoves Cole back into his seat, as Cole was just super annoying in this match, basically playing McAfee's cheerleader. I don't know if he was trying to be the JR to McAfee's Stone Cold, but it didn't quite have the same effect. McAfee regains the advantage and hits what Cole called the Swanton Bambini to Corbin, which is basically a Swanton bomb to a standing Corbin from the top rope to the floor, but Corbin was a little late in catching him, and McAfee looked like he took a hard bump on the floor, which did not look pleasant. Back in the ring, McAfee connects with a right hand to Corbin, but Corbin falls into the ref, who takes a bump, McAfee uses this to his advantage and punts Corbin in his happy spot and then follows up with a very awkward looking code red out of the corner for the win. In a huge time filler, Drew McIntyre is introduced to the live crowd. He makes fun of the fact that we've been seeing endless matches between Brock and Roman and then goes on to say that he's going to be the new champion at Clash at the Castle. One of my listeners, Jake Allenar, actually made a really good point that the WWE doesn't realize that patriotism in the UK is not the same as patriotism in the US, and the company is taking a major risk by promoting a Stotsman as a conquering hero in Cardiff, Wales. We'll see how that goes, but this segment definitely didn't need to be on an already loaded show. The Street Profits challenged the Usos up next for the unified tag titles with the Cho Cho Chosen One, Jeff Jarrett, as the special guest referee. Jarrett had a really busy weekend, that's for sure. Okay, so I'm still very confused by this whole guest referee stipulation. Considering the outcome of the last match where Montez had his shoulder up during the pin, don't you think they'd want a more experienced referee for this match? I thought this match was much slower paced than the previous encounter, and it just never got to the next level for me. 
and the Jarrett factor was definitely distracting throughout. There was a sequence of near falls at one point, and then Jimmy, I believe, tried a super kick on Montez, who ducked, and he almost hit Jarrett, but Jarrett caught his foot and spun him around into a sky high from Dawkins, and then Ford hit the frog splash for a close near fall. Ford was noticeably upset and started arguing with Jarrett about the count, almost making him look like a major heel, which I think might be the direction they're heading. The Usos take Ford out on the outside and dump him over the barricade. They then hit a pair of super kicks on Dawkins and then plant another double super kick in the ring, followed by the splash off the top, and that's the finish, which kind of came out of nowhere. It was a very underwhelming match and finish in my opinion and definitely paled in comparison to their Money in the Bank match. It seemed clear to me that they are teasing a breakup of the Street Profits with Montez getting a heel push, but where do you even go with the Usos from here? Who else is even left in the division? The New Day have been losing left and right, and most of the other teams are heels. I mean, I guess the Mysterios could be an option, but they don't have a ton of momentum right now either. That said, Hunter was able to reinvent the tag team wrestling scene in NXT, so I'm hoping we see the same results on the main roster and perhaps get some new teams established. In another bizarre segment that really didn't need to be on the show, Riddle comes out to the ring and refuses to leave until Seth Rollins comes out to face him, despite all the agents and trainers trying to talk Riddle out of it, as he has an injury, which is all kayfabe by the way. Rollins eventually does accept the challenge and they start brawling in the entranceway and eventually make their way to the ring where Rollins catches Riddle with an elbow and then another stomp and that's basically it. I didn't get this at all or why this needed to be on the show. Ronda Rousey faced Liv Morgan in the co-main event for the SmackDown women's title which was my bathroom break of the night. Ronda basically ragdolls Liv around in the early stages of the match. She eventually gets the armbar applied but Liv manages to reach the rope with her foot. The doctors and trainers then check on Liv, who's clutching her arm and doing a masterful job of selling, or at least I hope it's selling. Ronda then reapplies the armbar, and I'm sorry, but are we expected to believe that Liv Morgan has better armbar defense than Misha Tate? Come on. Anyway, Liv rolls over into a pinning combination and surprises Rousey to keep her belt. But then they replay the footage, which clearly shows Liv tapping to the armbar before the three count, so this one ends in controversy. I thought it was a creative way to get to the finish and still made it believable that Liv could win. After the match, Ronda attacks Liv from behind and reapplies the armbar, basically turning heel. She then applies the armbar to the referee as well, a la Ken Shamrock from back in the day when he used to snap. This leads into the main event. It was Roman Reigns defending the Universal WWE title against Brock Lesnar in a last man standing match. Brock comes to the ring driving a tractor and then jumps off the front loader with a shoulder tackle to Roman to start the match. This match was nuts. Lesnar was very reckless too in the early going and looked like he was legitimately trying to injure someone. Heyman's momentary distraction allowed Reigns to gain the advantage with a couple of Samoan drops through outside tables which busted Brock's back open. Brock retaliates by placing Roman into the front loader of the tractor and then operating the machine to dump Reigns back into the ring. Lesnar tries the F5 but Reigns counters into a guillotine choke. Lesnar switches positions and applies a guillotine of his own, causing Reigns to pass out. But Roman does end up getting up before 10. Lesnar then drives the tractor right into the ring which actually shifts the ring about 2 feet forward. He then operates the front loader to lift the ring on a tilt which looked crazy 
and ends up knocking Roman off of his feet as he tumbles out of the ring to the floor. The Usos eventually interfere, but Brock takes both to Suplex City. Lesnar then F5s Heyman through the announce table, and Heyman did a great job of selling it as he was down for the rest of the show. This distraction allows Reigns to spear Brock out of nowhere, and with both guys down, Theory's music hits and he comes racing out with the referee and the Money in the Bank briefcase. He ends up hitting Roman in the face with the briefcase and then signals to the ref that he wants to cash in, but before the bell is rung, Lesnar catches Theory and hits an F5 on the floor. The Usos then hit a double super kick to Brock and Reigns spears him and then hits him with a couple of belt shots, but Brock gets up each time. Roman hits him with a final shot with the belt, and then he and the Usos start burying Lesnar under all the equipment at ringside, including pieces of the announce table and the steel steps, and Roman stands on top of the pile to ensure that Brock can't get up, and he doesn't, so Roman Reigns keeps the belts to the surprise of no one. I'm very happy that they didn't have Theory cash in and win the titles, because he clearly isn't ready yet, and this would have been the wrong time to do it. So that was SummerSlam, but the weekend in Nashville didn't end there, as we also had the StarCast event held just last night featuring what was advertised as Ric Flair's final match. And I say advertised because I've heard that before. But at 73, I have to believe that this is legit. I won't go into as much detail here, but instead just run through some of the highlights. This was a really, really good show. Probably my favorite of the year thus far, and everyone involved put forth quite an effort to make it feel that much more special. I thoroughly enjoyed each of the matches. The Lucha 4-Way in particular was fantastic, although there was a frightening spot where Bandito attempted the somersault to the floor and almost landed on his head, but luckily Torus caught him, and he was able to recover nicely and turn it into a destroyer. The opening tag match featuring the Guns against the Wolves was very good as well, and I also liked the tag match later in the show with Ricky Morton teaming with his son. For lack of a better term, I'll use that word again, detailed, because it was a very detailed event with lots of video shoutouts and cameos. I thought it was a nice touch having Tony Schiavone and David Crockett call the entire event, and they also had the Spanish announced team of Carlos Cabrera and Hugo Savenovich but they also alternated guest commentators throughout for each of their individual promotions matches. They had Tom Hannafin calling the Impact title match, Ian Riccoboni calling the match with ROH talent, and Nick Aldis calling the NWA match. As I said, there were a lot of cameos as well, including Anthony Corelli, the former Santino Morella, Al Snow, Vicky Guerrero, Mick Foley, The Undertaker with his wife Michelle McCool, and Bret Hart. We also had some video shoutouts from Booker T, Shawn Michaels, Jake Roberts, Will Sasso of all people, remember him? Doug Dillinger, who I haven't seen since WCW, so that was a nice touch. Lex Luger, and Cody Rhodes, who the WWE, I guess, gave a free pass. And Jim Ross. And on top of that, they had backstage vignette featuring a very heel Jerry Lawler, along with Jeff and Jerry Jarrett. The main event was pretty good for what it was. I didn't expect it to be a 5-star classic, but they did a good job of working within Flair's limitations, and he didn't look too embarrassing out there. Jay Lethal in particular did a fantastic job of selling for him, and naturally, of course, Flair had to do the blade job, but I'm surprised his pants never came off throughout the match. And then the night ended with a very emotional Flair promo, thanking everyone who made his career a success, and basically suggested that this is indeed the end. I love this event, and I hope this is indeed the final chapter for Ric Flair. It was quite a way to go out. But there was yet another event Saturday night that really lit things up. 
It was the 277th UFC pay-per-view featuring an incredible rematch in the main event. The main card opened up with a light heavyweight contest between Magomed Ankalaev and Anthony Smith. It wasn't much of a fight until Ankalaev checked a leg kick from Smith which ended up shattering Smith's ankle and he was pretty well grounded for the rest of the fight, allowing Ankalaev to just swarm on him in round two and drop bombs from above to pick up the TKO victory. Ankalaev delivered a bit of a heel promo with Joe afterwards, basically not accepting responsibility for Smith being hurt, but also questioning how many fights he has to win before receiving a title shot. The flyweights took center stage up next as Alessandra Pantoja quickly submitted Alex Perez, basically climbing his back like a spider monkey to eventually get the rear naked choke. Sergei Pavlovich also made quick work of Derek Lewis in what some may call an upset. These two big boys came out swinging and Sergei had the scars of war all over his face as a result, but ended up clipping Lewis and getting the TKO victory. The interim flyweight title was decided in the co-main event as Brandon Moreno took on Kai Cara France. It looked like Cara France had victory well in hand as he landed a vicious elbow which busted Moreno open in the early going, but Moreno was able to rebound and deliver a swift kick to Cara France's liver, which from my vantage point looked as though it may have been a low blow. But the ref let it slide and then Moreno pounced on him with solid shots to pick up yet another TKO. In the post-fight interview, Moreno called out Davison Figueredo, who was sitting in the crowd, and very respectfully challenged him to unify those flyweight belts in December, and Figueredo graciously accepted, and suggested that they fight in Brazil, which Moreno was fine with. This might have been the most respectful challenge and acceptance ever. And then, of course, the main event was straight fire, as Amanda Nunez challenged Juliana Pena to hopefully regain her bantamweight title. Nunez floored Pena on multiple occasions with stiff shots, but I truly admire and respect Pena because despite being knocked down so many times, she kept getting back up and pushing forward. Pena also caught an elbow which busted her open. She did have a couple of hope spots near the end, first with an omoplata and then a cross armbar, both of which looked very tight and the announcers even started to call it, but Nunez was able to escape both submission attempts. Nunez did get a little cocky near the end, but perhaps she had a right to as she walked away with the unanimous decision victory to win back her title, but take nothing away from Pena, whose physical toughness, if that's a word, was on full display throughout the fight, and I would not rule out the possibility of a third fight between these two. So that was the weekend in combat sports. I will be back next week, hopefully with another guest co-host. Until then, I'll leave you with an A-B-C-Y-A.